Chapter Nineteen, Part Two of the Jacket by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Barry Eads. Twenty feet from shore, the boat was snatched out of my control. In a trice, it was overturned, and I was strangling in the salt. I never saw my companions again. By good fortune, I was buoyed by the steering oar I still grasped, and by great good fortune, a fling of sea at the right instant. At the right spot, threw me far up the far gentle slope of the one shelving rock on all that terrible shore. I was not hurt, I was not bruised, and with brain reeling from weakness, I was able to crawl and scramble farther up beyond the clutching backwash of the sea. I stood upright, knowing myself saved, and thanking God, and staggering as I stood. Already the boat was pounded to a thousand fragments, and though I saw them not, I could guess how grievously had been pounded the bodies of Captain Nicole and Arnold Bentham. I saw an oar on the edge of the foam, and at certain risk I drew it clear. Then I fell to my knees, knowing myself fainting. And yet, ere I fainted, with a sailor's instinct, I dragged my body on and up among the cruel hurting rocks to faint finally beyond the reach of the sea. I was near a dead man myself that night, mostly in stupor, only dimly aware at times of the extremity of cold and wet that I endured. Morning brought me astonishment and terror. No plant, not a blade of grass, grew on that wretched projection of rock from the ocean's bottom. A quarter of a mile in width and a half a mile in length, it was no more than a heap of rocks. Naught could I discover to gratify the cravings of exhausted nature. I was consumed with thirst, yet was there no fresh water. In vain I tasted to my mouth's undoing every cavity and depression in the rocks. The spray of the gale so completely had enveloped every portion of the island that every depression was filled with water salt as the sea. Of the boat remained nothing, not even a splinter to show that a boat had been. I stood possessed of my garments, a stout knife, and the one oar I had saved. The gale had abated, and all that day, staggering and falling, crawling till hands and knees bled, I vainly sought water. That night, nearer death than ever, I sheltered behind a rock from the wind. A heavy shower of rain made me miserable. I removed my various coats and spread them to soak up the rain. But when I came to wring the moisture from them into my mouth, I was disappointed, because the cloth had been thoroughly impregnated with the salt of the ocean in which I had been immersed. I lay on my back, my mouth open to catch the few raindrops that fell directly into it. It was tantalizing, but it kept my membranes moist and me from madness. The second day I was a very sick man. I, who had not eaten for so long, began to swell to a monstrous fatness my legs, my arms, my whole body. With the slightest of pressures my fingers would sink in a full inch into my skin, and the depressions so made were long in going away. Yet did I labor sore in order to fulfill God's will that I should live. Carefully, with my hands, I cleaned out the salt water from every slight hole, in the hope that succeeding showers of rain might fill them with water that I could drink. My sad lot and the memories of the loved ones at Elkton threw me into a melancholy, so that I often lost my recollection for hours at a time. This was a mercy, for it veiled me from my sufferings that else would have killed me. In the night I was roused by the beat of rain, and I crawled from hole to hole, lapping up the rain or licking it from the rocks. 
Brackish it was, but drinkable. It was what saved me, for toward morning I awoke to find myself in a profuse perspiration and quite free of all delirium. Then came the sun, the first time since my stay on the island, and I spread most of my garments to dry. Of water I drank my careful fill, and I calculated there was ten days' supply if carefully husbanded. It was amazing how rich I felt with this vast wealth of brackish water, and no great merchant, with all his ships returned from prosperous voyages, his warehouses filled to the rafters, his strong-boxes overflowing, could have felt as wealthy as did I when I discovered, cast up on the rocks, the body of a seal that had been dead for many days. Nor did I fail, first, to thank God on my knees for this manifestation of his ever-unfailing kindness. The thing was clear to me. God had not intended I should die. From the very first, he had not so intended. I knew the dilapidated state of my stomach, and I ate sparingly in the knowledge that my natural veracity would surely kill me did I yield myself to it. Never had sweeter morsels passed my lips, and I make free to confess that I shed tears of joy again and again at contemplation of that putrefied carcass. My heart of hope beat strong in me once more. Carefully I preserved the portions of the carcass remaining. Carefully I covered my rock cisterns with flat stones, so that the sun's rays might not evaporate the precious fluid, and in precaution against some upspringing of wind in the night and the sudden flying of spray. Also I gathered me tiny fragments of seaweed, and dried them in the sun for an easement between my poor body and the rough rocks whereon I made my lodging. And my garments were dry, the first time in days, so that I slept the heavy sleep of exhaustion and of returning health. When I awoke to a new day I was another man. The absence of the sun did not depress me, and I was swiftly to learn that God, not forgetting me while I slumbered, had prepared other and wonderful blessings for me. I would have fain rubbed my eyes and looked again, for, as far as I could see, the rocks bordering upon the ocean were covered with seals. There were thousands of them, and in the water other thousands disported themselves, while the sound that went up from all their throats was prodigious and deafening. I knew it when I saw it. Meat lay there for the taking, meat sufficient for a score of ships' companies. I directly seized my oar, then which there was no other stick of wood on the island, and cautiously advanced upon all that immensity of provender. It was quickly guessed by me that these creatures of the sea were unacquainted with man. They betrayed no signals of timidity at my approach, and I found it a boy's task to wrap them on the head with the oar. And when I had so killed my third and my fourth, I went immediately and strangely mad. Indeed, quite bereft was I of all judgment as I slew and slew and continued to slay. For the space of two hours I toiled unceasingly with the oar till I was ready to drop. What excess of slaughter I might have been guilty of I know not, for at the end of that time, as if by a signal, all the seals that still lived threw themselves into the water and swiftly disappeared. I found the number of slain seals to exceed two hundred, and I was shocked and frightened because of the madness of slaughter that had possessed me. I had sinned by wanton wastefulness, and after I had duly refreshed myself with this good wholesome food, I set about as well as I could to make amends. But first, ere the great task began, I returned thanks to that being through whose mercy I had been so miraculously preserved. 
Thereupon I labored until dark, and after dark, skinning the seals, cutting the meat into strips, and placing it upon the tops of the rocks to dry in the sun. Also I found small deposits of salt in the nooks and crannies of the rocks on the weather side of the island. This I rubbed into the meat as a preservative. Four days I so toiled, and in the end was foolishly proud before God, in that no scrap of all that supply of meat had been wasted. The unremitting labor was good for my body, which built up rapidly by means of this wholesome diet in which I did not stint myself. Another evidence of God's mercy. Never in the eight years I spent on that barren islet was there so long a spell of clear weather and steady sunshine as in the period immediately following the slaughter of the seals. Months were to pass o'er ever the seals revisited my island, but in the meantime I was anything but idle. I built me a hut of stone, and adjoining it a storehouse for my cured meat. The hut I roofed with many seal-skins, so that it was fairly waterproof, but I could never cease to marvel, when the rain beat on that roof, that no less than a king's ransom in the London fur market protected a castaway sailor from the elements. I was quickly aware of the importance of keeping some kind of reckoning of time, without which I was sensible that I should soon lose all knowledge of the day of the week, and be unable to distinguish one from the other, and not know which was the Lord's day. I remembered back carefully to the reckoning of time kept in the longboat by Captain Nicole, and carefully, again and again, to make sure beyond any shadow of uncertainty, I went over the tale of the days and nights I had spent on the island. Then, by seven stones outside my hut, I kept my weekly calendar. In one place on the oar I cut a small notch for each week, and in another place on the oar I notched the months, being duly careful indeed to reckon in the additional days to each month over and beyond the four weeks. Thus I was enabled to pay due regard to the Sabbath. As the only mode of worship I could adopt, I carved a short hymn, appropriate to my situation, on the oar, which I never failed to chant on the Sabbath. God, in his all mercy, had not forgotten me, nor did I, in those eight years, fail at all proper times to remember God. It was astonishing the work required, under such circumstances, to supply one's simple needs of food and shelter. Indeed, I was rarely idle that first year. The hut itself, a mere layer of rocks, nevertheless took six weeks of my time. The tardy curing and the endless scraping of the sealskins, so as to make them soft and pliable for garments, occupied my spare moments for months and months. Then there was the matter of my water supply. After any heavy gale, the flying spray salted my saved rainwater, so that at times I was grievously put to live through till fresh rains fell unaccompanied by high winds. Aware that a continual dropping will wear a stone, I selected a large stone, fine and tight of texture, and by means of smaller stones I proceeded to pound it hollow. In five weeks of most arduous toil I managed thus to make a jar which I esteemed to hold a gallon and a half. Later I similarly made a four-gallon jar. It took me nine weeks. Other small ones I also made from time to time. One, that would have contained eight gallons, developed a flaw when I had worked seven weeks on it. But it was not until my fourth year on the island, when I had become reconciled to the possibility that I might continue to live there for the term of my natural life, that I created my masterpiece. It took me eight months, but it was tight, and it held upwards of thirty gallons. 
These stone vessels were a great gratification to me, so much so that at times I forgot my humility and was unduly vain of them. Truly, they were more elegant to me than was ever the costliest piece of furniture to any queen. Also I made me a small rock vessel, containing no more than a quart, with which to convey water from the catching places to my large receptacles. When I say that this one-quart vessel weighed all of two stone, the reader will realize that the mere gathering of the rainwater was no light task. Thus I rendered my lonely situation as comfortable as could be expected. I had completed me a snug and secure shelter, and as to provision, I had always on hand a six-month supply, preserved by salting and drying. For these things, so essential to preserve life, and which one could scarcely have expected to obtain upon a desert island, I was sensible that I could not be too thankful. Although denied the privilege of enjoying the society of any human creature, not even of a dog or a cat, I was far more reconciled to my lot than thousands probably would have been. Upon the desolate spot where fate had placed me, I conceived myself far more happy than many who, for ignominious crimes, were doomed to drag out their lives in solitary confinement, with conscience ever biting as a corrosive canker. However dreary my prospects, I was not without hope that that providence, which, at the very moment when hunger threatened me with dissolution, and when I might easily have been engulfed in the maw of the sea, had cast me upon those barren rocks, would finally direct someone to my relief. If deprived of the society of my fellow-creatures, and the conveniences of life, I could not but reflect that my forlorn situation was yet attended with some advantages. Of the whole island, though small, I had peaceable possession. No one, it was probable, would ever appear to dispute my claim, unless it were the amphibious animals of the sea. Since the island was almost inaccessible, at night my repose was not disturbed by continual apprehension of the approach of cannibals or of beasts of prey. Again and again I thank God on my knees for these various and many benefactions. Yet is a man ever a strange and unaccountable creature. I, who had asked of God's mercy no more than putrid meat to eat, and a sufficiency of water not too brackish, was no sooner blessed with an abundance of cured meat and sweet water then I began to know discontent with my lot. I began to want fire, and the savour of cooked meat in my mouth. And continually I would discover myself longing for certain delicacies of the palate, such as were part of the common daily fare on the home table at Elkton. Strive as I would, ever my fancy eluded my will, and wantoned in daydreaming of the great things I had eaten, and of the good things I would eat if ever I were rescued from my lonely situation. It was the old Adam in me, I suppose, the taint of that first father who was the first rebel against God's commandments. Most strange is man, ever insatiable, ever unsatisfied, never at peace with God or himself, his days filled with restlessness and useless endeavor, his nights a glut of vain dreams of desires willful and wrong. Yes, and also I was much annoyed by my craving for tobacco. My sleep was often a torment to me, for it was then that my desires took license to rove, so that a thousand times I dreamed myself possessed of hogheads of tobacco, a and of warehouses of tobacco, and of shiploads, and of entire plantations of tobacco. But I revenged myself upon myself. 
I prayed God unceasingly for a humble heart, and chastised my flesh with unremitting toil. Unable to improve my mind, I determined to improve my barren island. I labored four months at constructing a stone wall thirty feet long, including its wings, and a dozen feet high. This was as a protection to the hut in the periods of the great gales when all the island was as a tiny petrel in the maw of the hurricane. Nor did I conceive the time misspent. Thereafter I lay snug in the heart of calm, while all the air for a hundred feet above my head was one stream of gust-driven water. In the third year I began me a pillar of rock. Rather it was a pyramid, four-square, broad at the base, sloping upward, not steeply to the apex. In this fashion I was compelled to build, for gear and timber there was none in all the island for the construction of scaffolding. Not until the close of the fifth year was my pyramid complete. It stood on the summit of the island. Now, when I state that the summit was but forty feet above the sea, and that the peak of my pyramid was forty feet above the summit, it will be conceived that I, without tools, had doubled the stature of the island. It might be urged by some unthinking ones that I interfered with God's plan in the creation of the world. Not so, I hold. For was not I equally a part of God's plan, along with this heap of rocks upjutting in the solitude of ocean? My arms with which to work, my back with which to bend and lift, my hands cunning to clutch and hold, were not these parts too in God's plan? Much I pondered the matter. I know that I was right. In the sixth year I increased the base of my pyramid, so that in eighteen months thereafter the height of my monument was fifty feet above the height of the island. This was no tower of Babel. It served two right purposes. It gave me a lookout from which to scan the ocean for ships, and increased the likelihood of my island being sighted by the careless roving eye of any seaman. And it kept my body and mind in health. With hands never idle, there was small opportunity for Satan on that island. Only in my dreams did he torment me, principally with visions of varied foods and with imagined indulgence in the foul weed called tobacco. On the eighteenth day of the month of June, in the sixth year of my sojourn on that island, I descried a sail. But it passed far to leeward, at too great a distance to discover me. Rather than suffering disappointment, the very appearance of this sail afforded me the liveliest satisfaction. It convinced me of a fact that I had before in a degree doubted, to wit, that these seas were sometimes visited by navigators. Among other things, where the seals hauled up out of the sea, I built wide-spreading wings of low rock walls that narrowed to a cul-de-sac, where I might conveniently kill such seals as entered, without exciting their fellows outside, and without permitting any wounded or frightening seal to escape and spread a contagion of alarm. Seven months to this structure alone were devoted. As the time passed, I grew more content with my lot, and the devil came less and less in my sleep to torment the old Adam in me with lawless visions of tobacco and savory foods. And I continued to eat my seal meat and call it good, and to drink the sweet rainwater of which always I had plenty, and to be grateful to God. And God heard me, I know, for during all my term on that island I never knew a moment of sickness save two, both of which were due to my gluttony, as I shall later relate. In the fifth year, ere I had convinced myself that the keels of ships did on occasion plough these seas, 
I began carving on my oar minutes of the more remarkable incidents that had attended me since I quitted the peaceful shores of America. This I rendered as intelligible and permanent as possible, the letters being of the smallest size. Six and even five letters were often a day's work for me, so painstaking was I. And, lest it should prove my hard fortune never to meet the long-wished opportunity to return to my friends and to my family at Elkton, I engraved, or niched, on the broad end of the oar, the legend of my ill fate, which I have already quoted near the beginning of this narrative. This oar, which had proved so serviceable to me in my destitute situation, and which now contained a record of my own fate and that of my shipmates, I spared no pains to preserve. No longer did I risk it in knocking seals on the head. Instead, I equipped myself with a stone club, some three feet in length and of suitable diameter, which occupied an even month in the fashioning. Also, to secure the oar from the weather, for I used it in mild breezes as a flagstaff on top of my pyramid, from which to fly a flag I made me from one of my precious shirts, I contrived for it a covering of well-cured sealskins. In the month of March of the sixth year of my confinement, I experienced one of the most tremendous storms that was perhaps ever witnessed by man. It commenced at about nine in the evening, with the approach of black clouds and a freshening wind from the southwest, which, by eleven, had become a hurricane, attended with incessant peals of thunder and the sharpest lightning I had ever witnessed. I was not without apprehension for the safety of the island. Over every part the seas made a clean breach, except of the summit of my pyramid. There the life was nigh beaten and suffocated out of my body by the drive of the wind and spray. I could not but be sensible that my existence was spared solely because of my diligence in erecting the pyramid and so doubling the stature of the island. Yet in the morning I had great reason for thankfulness. All my saved rainwater was turned brackish, save that in my largest vessel, which was sheltered in the lee of the pyramid. By careful economy, I knew I had drink sufficient until the next rain, no matter how delayed, should fall. My hut was quite washed out by the seas, and of my great store of seal meat only a wretched, pulpy modicum remained. Nevertheless, I was agreeably surprised to find the rocks plentifully distributed with a sort of fish more nearly like the mullet than any I had ever observed. Of these I picked up no less than twelve hundred and nineteen, which I split and cured in the sun after the manner of cod. This welcome change of diet was not without its consequence. I was guilty of gluttony, and for all the succeeding night I was near to death's door. In the seventh year of my stay on the island, in the very same month of March, occurred a similar storm of great violence. Following upon it, to my astonishment, I found an enormous dead whale, quite fresh, which had been cast up high and dry by the waves. Conceive my gratification when in the bowels of the great fish I found deeply embedded a harpoon of the common sort with a few fathoms of new line attached thereto. Thus were my hopes again revived that I should finally meet with an opportunity to quit the desolate island. Beyond doubt, these seas were frequented by whalemen, and, so long as I kept up a stout heart, sooner or later I should be saved. For seven years I had lived on seal meat, so that at sight of the enormous plentitude of different and succulent food I fell a victim to my weakness, 
and ate of such quantities that once again I was well nigh to dying. And yet, after all, this and the affair of the small fish were mere indispositions due to the foreignness of the food to my stomach, which had learned to prosper on seal-meat and on nothing but seal-meat. Of that one whale I preserved a full year's supply of provision. Also, under the sun's rays, in the rock hollows, I tried out much of the oil, which, with the addition of salt, was a welcome thing in which to dip my strips of seal-meat whilst dining. Out of my precious rags of shirts I could even have contrived a wick, so that, with the harpoon for steel and rock for flint, I might have had a light at night. But it was a vain thing, and I speedily forewent the thought of it. I had no need for light when God's darkness descended, for I had schooled myself to sleep from sundown to sunrise, winter and summer. I, Darrell Standing, cannot refrain from breaking in on this recital of an earlier existence in order to note a conclusion of my own. Since human personality is a growth, a sum of all previous existences added together, what possibility was there for Warden Atherton to break down my spirit in the Inquisition of Solitary? I am life that survived a structure, built it up through the ages of the past, and such a past. What were ten days and nights in the jacket to me? To me, who had once been Daniel Foss, and for eight years learned patience in that school of rocks in the far south ocean. At the end of my eighth year on the island in the month of September, when I had just sketched most ambitious plans to raise my pyramid to sixty feet above the summit of the island, I awoke one morning to stare out upon a ship with topsails aback and nearly within hail. That I might be discovered, I swung my oar in the air, jumped from rock to rock, and was guilty of all manner of livelinesses of action, until I could see the officers on the quarter-deck looking at me through their spy-glasses. They answered by pointing to the extreme westerly end of the island, whither I hastened and discovered their boat manned by half a dozen men. It seems, as I was to learn afterward, the ship had been attracted by my pyramid, and had altered its course to make closer examination of so strange a structure that was greater of height than the wild island on which it stood. But the surf proved to be too great to permit the boat to land on my inhospitable shore. After divers' unsuccessful attempts, they signaled me that they must return to the ship. Conceive my despair at thus being unable to quit the desolate island. I seized my oar, which I had long since determined to present to the Philadelphia Museum if ever I were preserved, and with it plunged headlong into the foaming surf. Such was my good fortune and my strength and agility that I gained the boat. I cannot refrain from telling here a curious incident. The ship had by this time drifted so far away that we were all of an hour getting aboard. During this time I yielded to my propensities that had been baffled for eight long years, and begged of the second mate, who steered, a piece of tobacco to chew. This granted, the second mate also proffered me his pipe, filled with prime Virginia leaf. Scarce had ten minutes passed when I was taken violently sick. The reason for this was clear. My system was entirely purged of tobacco, and what I now suffered was tobacco poisoning, such as afflicts any boy at the time of his first smoke. Again I had reason to be grateful to God, and from that day to the day of my death I neither used nor desired the foul weed. I, Darrell Standing, 
must now complete the amazingness of the details of this existence which I relived while unconscious in the straitjacket in San Quentin prison. I often wondered if Daniel Foss had been true in his resolve and deposited the carved ore in the Philadelphia Museum. It is a difficult matter for a prisoner in solitary to communicate with the outside world. Once with a guard, and once with a short-timer in solitary, I entrusted, by memorization, a letter of inquiry addressed to the curator of the museum. Although under the most solemn pledges, both these men failed me. It was not until after Ed Morrell, by a strange whirl of fate, was released from solitary and appointed head trustee of the entire prison, that I was able to have the letter sent. And now I give the reply, sent me by the curator of the Philadelphia Museum, and smuggled to me by Ed Morrell. It is true there is such an ore here as you have described, but few persons can know of it, for it is not on exhibition in the public rooms. In fact, and I have held this position for eighteen years, I was unaware of its existence myself. But upon consulting our old records, I found that such an ore had been presented by one Daniel Foss of Elkton, Maryland, in the year 1821. Not until after a long search did we find the ore in a disused attic lumber room of odds and ends. The notches and the legend are carved on the ore just as you have described. We have also on file a pamphlet presented at the same time, written by the said Daniel Foss, and published in Britain by the firm of N. Coverley, Jr. in the year 1834. This pamphlet describes eight years of a castaway's life on a desert island. It is evident that this mariner, in his old age and in want, hawked this pamphlet about among the charitable. I am very curious to learn how you became aware of this ore, of the existence of which we of the museum were ignorant. Am I correct in assuming that you have read an account of some diary published later by this Daniel Foss? I shall be glad for any information on the subject, and am proceeding at once to have the ore and the pamphlet put back on exhibition. Very truly yours, Hosea Salisbury. Footnote. Since the execution of Professor Darrell Standing, at which time the manuscript of his memoirs came into our hands, we have written to Mr. Hosea Salisbury, curator of the Philadelphia Museum, and in reply have received confirmation of the existence of the ore and the pamphlet. The Editor End footnote End of chapter 19